0: On Friday, I was in here after everything was all set up, and I told Pastor Brian, I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking around, and I feel like I should be preaching in a bathing suit. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he goes, well, I'm sure you'd get people's attention. <laughs> but we're not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to go ahead and embarrass my wife. So, what I'd like to do this morning uh, is take a look at a passage in Matthew chapter 6. And I'm sure it's uh, familiar to probably many of you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please feel free to turn there. I'm going to start in verse 5, although the primary focus is going to be on verses 9 through 13. But I'm going to try to set more immediate context. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, says this. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you grew up attending Mass, you might recall this prayer as titled, The Our Father. In Protestant circles, it's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, which is kind of a misnomer. It's not really the Lord's Prayer, it's actually the the Disciples' Prayer. The Lord Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. If you want to see the Lord's Prayer, you have to go to John 17. And it's not so much a prayer that we should pray, although we could do that, but rather it's a kind of model to pray or model that we should follow or we could follow in prayer. And it contains a number of elements that our time with God should include. And I'm going to go over some of those this morning. So, to begin, the prayer opens with our Father. Notice then that Jesus initiates this prayer with the parent-child relationship. This is a specific mark of believers only, only those who have been converted, as it were, to kingdom citizenship. As the text says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. One famous German New Testament scholar said that the word Jesus uses for father is most likely Abba, which is Aramaic, it's not what's written in the Greek here, but this would be equivalent to our English word daddy, right? It carries an intimate and personal connotation. In Galatians 4.6, Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And in Romans 8, he says, For you received the Spirit of Sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. God is only the Father of unbelievers, in the sense that he's the creator of all things. And Jesus specifically told those who Uh, spoke against his message that they were doing the will of their father. Who was that, did he say? He told the Jews, the devil. That's what Jesus said. The Gospel of John says that Jesus came to that which was his own, that is the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to him who, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So let me just stop for a moment and ask, are you relating to God in that way now as a child? I don't just mean in the past, but right now are you relating to Him as Abba Father, as Daddy, an intimate, spiritual Father, a close connection with God? Or does God seem distant to you? Are you going through the motions? What am I doing? I have to ask myself this question. Because the Christian life has to do with prayer. It's the very heartbeat, as it were, and it's how this very prayer begins. Our Father. It's grounded in who God is. Paul says in Ephesians, pray at all times in the spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, pray without ceasing. I believe that's the shortest verse in the Bible. You can check me out on that, but I think it's one Greek letter short of Jesus wept. So next time when somebody says, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? You could say, I know, it's not what you think. (laughs) But does that describe you right now? Because if it doesn't, I have good news, it can. Salvation itself begins with prayer, and it continues as a total way of life. As Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned he has crossed over from death to life. If there's just one verse in the New Testament that can kernelize the gospel, I think it's that. I think it's John five twenty four there. But Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how you get initiated, as it were, into Christianity, is through prayer, acknowledging to God your belief in who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. This has a number of implications. I'm going to list just a few, seven actually. Uh, First, being a child of God implies a childlike trust when we go to God in prayer. Nowhere in scripture can I find are we supposed to have a childlike faith, on the contrary, Paul says, in regard to our faith, we're supposed to grow up. In regard to our thinking, be mature, Paul says. But this does imply a childlike trust in who we're going to. Second, a good father cares for his child. A good father cares for his child, and God is a perfect father. Father is it's an affectionate title, and we go to God as one who is affectionate toward us. As 1 Peter says, cast all your anxieties upon him because, what? He cares for you. That's right. Third, being a child implies protection. That doesn't mean he never allows anything bad to occur to us, but it does mean that he superintends what goes on with me and you, and he is intensely concerned about the outcome. Fourth, this should dispel loneliness as an implication as jesus said lo i'm with you always even till the end of the age the author of hebrews says god said that never will i leave you nor forsake you we're never alone in that regard fifth and this is the hard one or a hard one being a child of god should dispel fear it should dispel fear That verse in Hebrews 13, 6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I shall not be afraid. That's what the disciple of Christ should say. It's not always what I say. And 1 John says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. Once we become followers of Christ, we no longer have to fear punishment. Although we do sometimes get discipline. But there's a difference. There's a difference. Sixth, being a child of God should dispel selfishness. Notice that the prayer begins, our Father. Thus it implies we're all of one household and we shouldn't be comparing each other with one another. We have no more claim on God than the other person. We don't want to be like Peter. Remember the Gospel of John at the very end, Jesus says, follow me. And Peter looks back and he says, what about him? And Jesus said, what's that to you? You follow me. You pay attention. You have no more claim on me than another believer. Finally, being a child of God implies that he loves us. He loves us. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Don't let that get stale. So those are some of the implications of just the very beginning of, of the prayer. That's how the prayer is grounded in the son, daughter, father relationship. Jesus invites us to pray as he himself did. Quote, In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. He gives them a share in his sonship and empowers them as disciples to speak with their heavenly father, in just such a familiar, trusting way as a child could with his father, End quote. Also included in verse 9, which is a bit different than this version of the prayer, which is also found in Luke 11, you find who is in heaven, thus our Father, who is in heaven. Now, this inclusion could imply a number of different things, for example. It could imply God's transcendence. He is beyond us. It could imply his exaltation. Psalm 115.3 says, But God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It could imply that God has the resources of heaven at his disposal. It's a good thing. Or the reality that he has seated us in the heavenlies with Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. It could refer to the idea uh, that's found in the book of Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar would get his kingdom back once he acknowledges that heaven rules That phrase makes me think of headbanging, like, heaven rules, yeah. But I think there are two other reasons that seem to be more fitting in this context, at least in my mind. One harkens back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where it says, Guard your steps when you go to the household of God. Draw near to listen, rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who do do, do not know that they do wrong. And he says, Do not be hasty in word. Uh... To bring up a matter before God? For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, Jesus just got done saying to the disciples, don't be like the people who use repetition over and over because they think they will be heard. Because he just got done saying, God already knows what you need before you ask. We petition to God, but he already knows what we need. Second, by saying our Father who is in heaven, Jesus identifies the disciple as a kingdom citizen and the heir of the place God already rules, as we'll see. If you remember the context of Matthew 6, remember what's in Matthew 5 through 7? You remember that's called? The Sermon on the Mount. And how does that go? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive what? Mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see who? God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, and you, and you, and you... When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of my name, rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. That's right. He identifies us with the kingdom of heaven, our Father in heaven. That's his kingdom. We are the heirs of that kingdom, especially when it comes to earth. So, when we begin by our prayer by saying, our Father who is in heaven, we're really verbalizing the relationship between us and God, the one who gives us spiritual birth as it is, the capacity to love and worship and adore that was lost at the fall, as well as the need to be thoughtful in our approach in light of who God is. As John MacArthur says, quote, this, this prayer indicates God's eagerness to lend his ear, his power, and his eternal blessings to the petitions of his children if it serves them best and further reveals his purpose and glory, end quote. Now that's great, and it's been 15 minutes and we've only covered five words, so we're on a roll. But hopefully we see the importance and the entailment of grounding this prayer in our Father who is in heaven. That is the crux of of what's going on here, that's where the prayer is grounded. Second, hallowed be your name, or hallowed after basing the entire prayer on the relationship with God, we open next with praise and worship. And this is why one commentator says worship is the essence of prayer. When we're praying, we're going to worship God. To hallow means to revere, and adore as sacred. So when it says, hallowed be your name, it's not only referring to the titles or attributes of God, but as Julie said, what his character as well. What is God like What is God like? And one way to find this out is to check in our Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, as it were. There, for example, the Heavenly Father appears to Moses in Exodus 34 and says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin That's pretty good. That's who I'm going to worship. Moreover, the closest we get to seeing what the Father is like is to look at Jesus. He told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Right. Jesus also said in his priestly prayer, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me. Hallowed be your name. How do we find out about the name? Jesus manifested the name. If you want to know what God is like, check out what Jesus did, what he said. Read the Gospels to see the character of God. Hebrews begins, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, who is the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If we want to know what God is like his character. Check out Jesus Christ. Hallowed be your name. All revering and adoring, all setting apart or regarding as holy, begins in the heart. As First Peter 3.15 says, this is our alma mater verse for seminary here, it is sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. That's how it begins. MacArthur again says, when we sanctify Christ in our hearts, we also sanctify him in our lives. And that is why right worship and right prayer is inseparable from right living. And that is hard. Psalm sixty-six eighteen 18 says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm walking in disobedience, I shouldn't expect my prayers to be answered. It's like if my dad tells me to do something, you know, go water the garden. I say no, and then I ask him for a new bike. What's he going to say, right? We can't separate worship from obedience. I used to hate the word obedience. Number one, I didn't do it. Number two, I didn't understand it. So there were two reasons for me. We cannot hallow God's name if we're actively living in sin and deliberately refusing to repent. Also, we cannot properly adore our father if we don't know what he's like which only makes sense. I mean, it's hard to adore what you don't know. And it's hard to know what you're not interested in. And there are so many things that vie for our attention today, right? You want me to do a study on Philippians when I have an iPhone? I mean, really, what's more entertaining? It's hard. Things compete for our attention nowadays. But prayer is a time when we learn to worship God for who. He is to learn to adore the name and character, the personal qualities of God, what he's like. All right, verse 10, your kingdom come. What does that mean? There's a lot to say. We'll keep it short. To pray your kingdom come is essentially to pray for the sovereignty and dominion of the Lord in general and the second coming of Christ in particular. The Bible says right now the whole world lies in the power of who? It doesn't say God, although that's true, which is kind of an enigma there. It lies in the power of the evil one. That's part of God's program to let Satan have the power of the world right now. So to pray your kingdom come is to ask God to finally establish his program on earth. If you were to flip to the very end of your Bible What's it say in Revelation? Right toward the very end, the last couple verses, Jesus says a little bit earlier, he said, yes, I'm coming quickly. How does John end it? He says, yes, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. To pray your kingdom come should be the desire of our hearts as a church. Usually the desire of my heart is whatever my immediate needs are. If I'm being honest, that's what I think about when I pray. Your will be done. It also adds, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? What does will mean? We'll keep this conversation short. What's will in this? In this context, just think that will means desire. What is our Father's desire, as it were? So we can say, your desire be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? And it also gives rise to the question, isn't God's desire always accomplished? Which the answer is yes and no, but, are there any senior high students here not at the same time or in the same? Good, Chase. (laughs) Did he say sense? We'll go with that. Not at the same time or in the same sense, or else you'd have a contradiction. So there is a sense when God's desire isn't always accomplished, or else it would be a little silly to put it in the prayer. So what exactly are we praying for here? Well, although God's will is one, it can be considered in three, we'll just call them aspects. First, you have God's sovereign will. Sovereign will is the overall comprehending plan of God. Everything that's ever been created, the universe the end times, the final culmination of the kingdom, all of that is comprehended in God's sovereign will. There is nothing that escapes his influence, his oversight, his power, which raises a whole host of philosophical problems, which we're not going to deal with, but nevertheless, it's true. That's what God's sovereign will is. Then there's God's moral will, we could call it, the things that should take place with things or people. Uh, For example, that all guilty people should repent. Is that something that should happen? Is that something that God desires? Because 1 Timothy 2 says, God desires all to be saved. And yet, are all saved? No. So there's a desire, God's will, that's not fulfilled. We can call that the moral will. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you, as a mother hen would gather her chicks, but... You would not. He wanted it. Didn't happen. Then, finally, we can think of God's perfect will. This would be something specifically for believers, which usually we want to know what God's sovereign will is so we can plan out our lives. But what is God's perfect will? What is the will of God for believers? The answer to that is to be conformed, to be like Jesus. That's what we're going to be like in the end. We could pray all three of these. But as you do, you'll notice that your will will be cropping up like a piece of steel that a blacksmith has to hammer down. Who's ever seen Forged in Fire? Yeah, What does a blacksmith have to do? Anybody have a thing at home? All right. Blacksmith hammers down the steel. Bam. It bends down. What happens? Pop. Hammers it again. Boom. Pop. Our natural bent just keeps popping up. And we have to hammer it into submission. We'll find that that happens when we pray. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, he says, I don't understand what I do. He said, the things that I want to do, I don't do. I have something in me that wants to do evil. That's what it does. So, when we pray, we're not asking God to conform to our prayers. But we're submitting ourselves to his will as it's being done in heaven and requesting that it be done on earth in a similar manner. How do we do that with a sincere heart? How do you actually pray that? Because I already said that my problems are always before my own eyes. That's what I'm thinking of. And the answer, like we've already said, we learn how to trust our Father who is in heaven, his name, his characteristics, that he's good. As a poem says, and this is real good. See if you can enter into this. If I forget, yet God remembers, if these hands of mine cease from their clinging, Yet the hands divine hold me so firmly that I cannot fall. And if sometimes I am too tired to call for him to help me, then he reads the prayer unspoken in my heart and lifts my care. I dare not fear, since certainly I know that I am in God's keeping, shielded so from all else that would harm. And in that hour of stern temptation, strengthened by his power, I tread no path in life to him unknown. I lift no burden bear no pain alone my soul a calm sure hiding place is found the everlasting arms my life surround God thou art love I build my faith on that I know thee who has kept my path and made light for me in the darkness tempering sorrow so that it reached me like a solemn joy it were too strange that I should doubt thy love how do you go to God Remember, God is love. And what what is love? And I don't mean night at the Roxbury. Some of you would be like this. What is it? Love is goodwill toward the object or to the one you're loving. God has goodwill toward you. So when you think, oh God, please don't give me anything because I want something good for myself, and what I want for myself must be better than what you want. Mm-mm. God wants our good more than we want good for ourselves. That's a hard truth. It is a truth, though. Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 11. i got to go quickly. What is this? It's a petition for God to provide for our physical needs. The Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but man certainly does live by bread, right? So, it's a petition for physical needs. Our daily bread means sufficient for Today which Jesus says in verse 32, that God already knows we need it. And bread here is a kind of catch-all phrase, which Martin Luther said can encompass whatever is required for preservation, food, health, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, things that are productive for life and for the gospel. But it's important to remember that God is concerned about these things as well. However, he tells us what at the end of chapter Six, do you know? To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all other things will be added unto us. He is concerned about those things, but we're supposed to to seek his kingdom first. All right. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we just talked about the physical need. This is the spiritual need. Man's greatest problem is sin, whether he's a disciple or not. And so the greatest need is forgiveness, pardon, clemency. What's in view here, remember, this is the disciples' prayer, okay? What's in view here is not primarily salvation, but personal fellowship. And we can see this in verses 14 and 15, where it says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will will not forgive your transgressions. It's the only thing that follows the disciples' prayer that he talks about is transgressions and not being forgiven if we don't forgive others. So it's like, well, am I forgiven because I believe or am I not? Because you can't slice it both ways, right? Well, the response to that is, quote, though God's forgiveness of sin is not based on one's forgiving others, a Christian's forgiveness is based on On realizing he has been forgiven. One cannot walk in fellowship with God if he refuses to forgive others. That's the message of 1 John, right? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. We claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, right? We cannot have adequate fellowship while we're walking in sin. So, to request forgiveness is a genuine request because we still sin and we still require spiritual cleansing if we're going to remain in fellowship with God. God deals with us as we deal with others. That's a John MacArthur quote there. That means if we forgive others for sinning against us, then God will forgive us in the same manner. If not, we invite discipline to ourselves, not condemned to hell, Romans 8.1, but we do invite discipline. We don't want that. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one, verse 13 here. What is it and why pray it? MacArthur, again, he sums this up really nicely. This is, quote, an appeal to God to place a watch over our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our feet, and our hands, that in whatever we see, hear, or say, and in any place we go, and in anything we do, he will protect us from sin. I like that. He calls this petition a safeguard against presumption and a false sense of security and self-sufficiency. What does that mean? It means, practically speaking, we tend to put ourselves in situations that we know aren't the best, but we think we're big enough to handle it, all right? So it's like, I shouldn't go to that sleepover because there's going to be girls there, but I'll probably be fine, right? Or I could probably visit this website, even though there's not great stuff there, I have self-control. I can go see this movie. I can go to the bar with my friends, I just won't drink. I can text this person just a little bit. We'll be okay. You guys are thinking I'm talking about you. These are all just me right here. (laughs) Anybody relate? I can go to this concert. I can go to these parties. I can keep myself out of trouble. I can win the lottery, and what is it? I'm I'm gonna start a foundation for homeless children. Remember Three Amigos, (laughs) Ned? (laughs) Chevy Chase goes, yeah, I was considering that too. (laughs) <laughs> after he just got done and he's going to Europe and <laughs> just <gonna laughs> live, live like a prodigal. The mature disciple, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's Hebrews 5. In other words, to live like a disciple, our prayer is more like, Father, I beg you, please keep me out of these situations because I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. Now, what happens if you find yourself in a situation you shouldn't be in? Whether because God let you be in it, or because you ended up in there by accident or on purpose, and you want to change your mind, what do you do? 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but what's common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. He can get you out. You may not be able to do it in your own strength, but by His grace... You certainly can do it. All right, verse 13b. For yours is the kingdom and the power for gl- and the glory forever. Amen. Some Bibles, you may have this in brackets, and that's because it may not be in the earliest and quote-unquote best manuscripts. Nevertheless, it is a fitting conclusion. It's very similar to 1 Chronicles 29 11. Let me read that for you real quick. Yours, O God, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Thus it brings the disciples' prayer to an appropriate climax. Whew, that was a lot, wasn't it? All right. Conclusion. Now what? Pray, pray today. I was going to have a cooler title, but... You can use this prayer as an outline for what kind of items to include. You don't have to pray all these at one time, but rather let them act as as guidelines and actual rules, right? To keep your prayers going in the right direction. If you don't know what to pray, just pray Scripture. I didn't used to like that idea. I like it now. Go home, open up to Psalm 119, and just see if you can identify, enter in with the psalmist there. See if you can pray those words. Remember that prayer is the heartbeat of the Christian life. It's something we need to be doing regularly along with reading our Bibles. Don't neglect it. Make time for it. Even if you've got to set a five-minute timer, anything, the heartbeat of the Christian life is quiet time with you and the Lord. Okay. There's corporate time too, but Jesus himself spent many times in solitude. It's during these quiet times you're going to learn to trust and rely on God, not, on the, not in the ostentatious and the spectacular but in the moments of pouring out the deepest recesses of your soul to your heavenly Father, who is always ready to receive you daily and hear from you and fellowship with you, if you'll have him, he'll have you, but will you have him? All right, that concludes my message this morning. I'll be around at the end for a few minutes. If you have any questions, hope you have a blessed day. Will you please join me in a moment of prayer as we enter into some of my favorite words of a hymn? That I'll read let's pray these together if thou but suffer God to guide thee and hope in him through all thy ways he'll give thee strength whatever betide thee and bear thee through the evil days who trusts in God's unchanging love builds on the rock that not can move what can these anxious cares avail thee these never ceasing moans and sighs what can it help if thou bewail thee over each dark moment as it flies. Our cross and trials do but press the heavier for our bitterness. Only be still and wait his leisure and cheerful hope with heart content to take whatever thy father's pleasure and all discerning love hath sent. Nor doubt our inmost wants are known to him who chose us for his own. Sing, pray, and keep his ways unswerving. So do thine own part faithfully and trust his word though undeserving Thou yet shalt find it true for thee. God never yet forsook it need, the soul that trusted him indeed. Amen.